0: Welcome to Frictionless Marketing, an exploration of how modern marketers are building their brands, reaching their audiences, and thriving in this post advertising world. Today, we've got a great guest with us, Glenn Murphy. Glenn is the director of communications at Tune Therapeutics, a company that is seriously pushing the envelope when it comes to medical innovation with its focus on epigenetics. Tune Therapeutics is revolutionizing gene therapy by using targeted epigenetic modulation to fine-tune gene expression. If you're not entirely sure what that means, keep listening. It's fascinating and, I believe, a very critical innovation in healthcare. Furthermore, Tune is breaking free from the limitations of traditional gene and cell therapy and developing solutions for even the most challenging diseases. In addition to his role at Tune Therapeutics, Glenn is the founder and chief instructor at NC Sistema, a unique training system that blends martial arts, yoga, massage, and meditation. He's also the founder of Stress Proof, which offers resilience training workshops and group retreats for stress management. On the writing front, Glenn is an accomplished author with more than 25 popular science titles to his name, covering topics from astronomy and anatomy to ecology and zoology. Among these are the children's hits, Why is Snot Green and Will Farts Destroy the Planet? In today's episode, we'll delve into the groundbreaking work Toon Therapeutics is doing in the realm of epigenetics and also hear Glenn's unique tips on communicating complex scientific topics to a broad range of stakeholders. Additionally, we'll explore how the resilience and stress management techniques Glenn has mastered serve him in his corporate work. Without further ado, please give a warm welcome to Glenn Murphy, Director of Communications at Toon Therapeutics.
1: All right, Glenn, it is, uh, it's nice to see you again. Thanks for agreeing to speak with us here today.
0: Oh, pleasure to be here.
2: Thanks for having me on.
1: So, Glenn, I thought we would start out by maybe just kind of educating a little bit about Tune therapeutics and, um, and what it is you do. And maybe for those who are new to the subject, could you explain a little bit about epigenomics or epigenetics sort of in the context of Tune's work and how you sort of articulate your therapeutic technology and how it works?
2: Yeah, that's the um, that's the twenty thousand dollar question, and that's essentially why um why I got hired. I think <laughs> I'm the science communications hire as opposed to the uh the, the PR and marketing guy. I'm probably in the PR and marketing space. I'm probably one of the the least credentialed people you're going to have on this podcast. So <laughs> um so yeah, it's really a scientific um communications challenge more than anything else. And it, s- simply put, um the epigenome is everything that's not the coding sequences and the the protein coding bits. Of uh, DNA and all the things that we've come to kind of associate with CRISPR and the genome editing projects and all those kinds of things, right? And um, it's the bits that lie outside of it that that determine how much of a given gene appears in a cell uh, and when. Um, and it's the natural system that actually produces the difference between all the cells in your body. So if you didn't have an epigenome, right? Um, then every single cell in your body would be the same and you'd be a sponge, right? <laughs> because um, <laughs> the only difference between a liver cell and a heart cell or a heart cell and a nerve cell is that it's read off in different ways, right? So the DNA in every single cell in your body is exactly the same, it's exactly the same stuff. So if there wasn't some system for determining which bits to read and say, okay, let's, we're definitely gonna have these genes here, hemoglobin ones if you're in a red blood cell, for example, um, or these genes over here to produce some cholesterol limiting protein in the liver cell, whatever it's going to be, um, then there wouldn't be any difference between them. So it's actually the naturally evolved system um, that all mammals and even a lot of other complex organisms further down the chain have in order to make their different cells do different things. So it's it's the fundamental basis for having different cells and tissues and things like that. Um, So the fascinating thing about it is, is that for a while we've known about DNA uh, right that's a, that's a 70 year old discovery at this point um and we've over the course of the last kind of half of the last century we we learned more and more about what the kind of coding bits of the DNA do how that relates to proteins how proteins relate to health and then lots and lots of pharmaceutical outputs there in ways to kind of block those proteins or um, or find ways of mediating the effect when those proteins go wrong but kind of the paradigm has always been that things go wrong genetically or in in an inherited way because you get some mutation in the coding sequence, right? You get a mutant piece of DNA and that makes a gnarly mutant protein. And then that leads to ill health. And then we have to try and fix that in some way. Um, And enter gene editing and all of those technologies that try to kind of literally treat DNA like a word processing problem. And they try and snip out the piece of, um, you know, poorly coded sequence and either replace it with something else, or you know, recode it, or just remove it altogether if you feel like it's vestigial and not helpful. Um, but it's, it's a fairly kind of drastic approach. And it also only applies to the protein coding bits. But the reality is that 90% or more of the common and complex diseases that um, most of the world suffers from um, involve not changes to the coding sequence and mutant proteins, but actually the, the bases are in all the right places right? And and the proteins that they make are fine. It's just the levels of those are either way too high or not enough. And that can just happen with age. As you get older and older, you just start making less of a certain protein because of this epigenomic downturn in regulation of things. Um, Or it can happen as a result of interactions with the environment, with diet and stress and things like that as well. But that's the critical understanding that we've come to over the past 20 or 30 years is that the bases are often in the right places, and that's not the problem. That's not the thing to be fixed. Now, in some conditions, obviously, there's lots of rare genetic conditions um, where all you do have to do is fix one gene, and that's wonderful. And, and I think gene editing and base editing and lots of associated technology with of those are going to have an enormous impact over the next um, you know, 20, 30 years, and they've already had a big impact on some of these what mm. we call monogenic conditions like single- Single gene disorders and things like that, but as we get into things that are more complex, in you know neurodegenerative disease, like complex heart disease, pulmonary disease, you know diabetes, all of these things, and um, that are you know exponentially. Um, disproportionately affecting modern populations and um, we're getting into kind of levels of complexity that are hard to deal with with that kind of simple system and that are not really the modality is not really designed to tackle them whereas ours is so we're literally taking this epigenomic system and instead of making word processing cuts we're just kind of retuning these regulators that turn up or down the levels of proteins you're, you're titrating to fix the problem. sorry
1: you're titrating
2: yeah, yeah, in a way. Yeah. And 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 I feel like and maybe this is something we'll get into as we discuss this, that I feel like the metaphors really matter here. Um, you know, gene yeah. editing, and even before that, genetic engineering took on this very mechanistic machine metaphor way of describing things like we just need to fix the sor- source code or like, you know, tinker with the machine <laughs> and get in there. And, and to some people, they're like, yeah, great, tinker with my machine. And other people are like, this sounds like dangerously unnatural tinkering with fundamental stuff. Right. And mm-hmm. um, so and that's fundamentally also what we're, we're not doing that, right? We're not cutting the DNA. It stays exactly kind of intact in terms of its coding sequence. We don't rewrite it. It stays the same. So it's more akin to kind of, I don't know, a music producer, like taking a, a rough track and then bringing up the bass by 10% and bring the treble down by 5% and and then just tuning it back to a place where it sounds harmonious and everything's working again. So it's kind of about restoring that harmonious health and all the things we need to do in order to get there. And the way that that's enabled is through genetic tuning platforms. Um, Ours is called Tempo, um, which is essentially, it's kind of like a CRISPR protein in the sense that it will bind to a specific bit of DNA, but where CRISPR will bind and then cut the DNA, like molecular surgery, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Ours binds, but cannot cut. It can't cut DNA, even if it wants to. Um, It just binds and then carries (laughs) this extra molecule called an effector, which will help to tune up or tune down the gene, silence it, or activate it in, in different ways. So that's the. That's the kind of uh, the cliff notes version of it, and and the well, it's, challenges. is really. I mean, first
1: of all, it's, it's fascinating, right, to be on the cutting edge of science and something yeah. that would impact these diseases in particular that are so strongly associated either with environmental factors or aging, which are you know, it there's there's pretty much every important major significant disease you know that we're uh, fighting today has some link to either aging or the environmental conditions, right? Yeah. Um, it's interesting the way you talk about sort of the the metaphors matter um one of my favorite topics is um gmo foods you know and how they kind of really lost the plot when they called it genetic modification you know it's sort of like scientists doing their own branding in a way that really came back to bite them in the butt because you know at the end of the day people are perfectly happy to have a golden doodle yeah and that's exactly what we're doing with corn you know or soybeans but Mm -hmm. for whatever reason we're okay with it in our puppies and not in our soybeans (laughs) and i think it is about you know the 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 way that you know calling it genetic genetic modification it's like you're talking about source code it's like it's like oh man yeah. I don't know that I want to modify the genetics of it, you know?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's funny enough. I did a I did a master's in science communication at Imperial College of Science Te- Technology Medicine in London. Um, and that was one of the case studies that we had, that and the onset of kind of nuclear energy. Yeah. Um, and in both cases, scientists were so keen to get the word out that they discovered something that they felt like was wonderful and world-changing. They didn't provide enough context. They just kind of slapped the name on it and said, hey, we've discovered this limitless source of, potentially limitless source of energy in the form of nuclear power, and it's going to be clean and safe. And the public are like, wait a minute, we saw two yeah. atomic bombs during the war. They didn't look clean or safe. And then you had Three Mile Island and you've had Fukushima. And then the, people build their own story. Like In the absence of a framing narrative, the data never speaks for itself. Right? The The audience will build its own story. And the story around nuclear energy is that it's dangerous. And that's put us backwards in terms of trying to transition to non-fossil fuels for climate change. Right. And um, it could have been the bridge that allowed us to get towards electric cars and, you know, all of those things a lot sooner and, and still might. Um, but the resistance to it because of this perception of non-safety, even though we know fossil fuels are dangerously <laughs> unsafe in other ways yep. as backfire and exactly right with GMOs, it's the same thing. You know, we called it genetic engineering and that's scary as an offset and people, what was in people's minds was were not the tomatoes that we suddenly had that weren't bruised that arrived lovely in the supermarket. It was Dolly the Sheep and, you know, failed right. cloning experiments and who's going to make the first cloned baby and all the things that Genesis never wanted to do and had massive international moratoriums to make sure that we never would, right? Um, but again, without the context, just kind of... Talking about it in a laudatory fashion and hoping everybody's as excited about it as you are is not a winning strategy. <laughs> so,
1: it's not, but it's fascinating. Yeah. That this is the thing that you studied, and of course, where you are now. So, so how are you? How are you applying that? How are you walking the line now with Tune Therapeutics, with educating people about this really exciting technology, but not, yeah, going too far or overpromising or you know, kind of letting the genie out of the bottle, if you will, in a way that you can't put it back in when. Inevitably, people might interpret it in the wrong way or whatever.
2: Yeah, the answer to that is very carefully. I think is the is the first part of that is um treading very carefully. I mean, in, obviously, I've I've got a specific role um within the company, and part of that is to play the short game of um helping to validate the technology, helping to secure investment, helping to get interest from potential business partners and also in in the kind of short term getting acceptance from kind of patient groups potentially and uh, clinicians and people who you know regulators and people that are going to have a big influence on our first clinical trials right um and to a certain extent kind of building that thought leadership there's not all that many people in this specific subset of the space in biotech we're one of the first ones to go out there and stick a flag in the sand along with you know a couple of others um and already we're doing some things that are First in the in the field. So now people are looking at tune and um and part of my role, I feel, is is to help establish us as, as the educators in the space, right? There, there's a gap at the moment in that um other companies in the space aren't quite filling that way. They're they're leaning hard towards the investment and the people that already know what it is, and they're not taking the time to spell out to everybody else how it differs from gene editing and other modalities and things like that. So so in the short term, lots of the same kinds of things that you'll see across the industry, right? It's, it's press releases, it's updates, it's milestones, it's um, maybe an explainer video, you know, and, and a social media presence that gradually ed- educates people over time. Um, and I'm trying to be just kind of consistent in that. But I'm also thinking in terms of the long game, right? I'm not just trying to get acceptance in terms of individuals within the next few years to try and tip the FDA to allowing us to do something with a clinical trial. Um, I'm also thinking in terms of setting the stage for the acceptance of this whole modality, like the technology as a whole, so that if we succeed, right, it's that critical question, like what happens if you succeed, right, um, that the, the world will actually be prepared um, for what for the for the potential benefits, the transformative benefits that are going to come out of this, not just for the first few products out of the pipeline, right? And um, so that's really kind of trying to balance the short game with the long game. And sometimes those two things come into tension with each other, you know. So you're going you know, to achieve a short term goal, but it's going to work to the detriment of the long term aim. Um, so I'm constantly thinking strategically about how best to to juggle those two things. Um, and I, I found your book absolutely fascinating, actually, the, the Friction Fatigue book, and just and this the strategic level of the idea of kind of collaborating from the outset um, mm-hmm. with the intended end users, right? Not waiting until you're about to do a clinical trial and then trying to get somebody on board, um, but really trying to get an understanding of what what it is that people even want from your kind of technology or, or platform um, and making it a conversation and a dialogue. And that's, that's something I have experience with from Education background and things like that. Most of my communication has been about creating dialogues, um, and I, I don't think that's a common thing in in the biotech sector. Yeah. Usually, it's very top down. Um, so I'm exploring ways to kind of create those um, conversations uh, in ways that uh, still in- enable us to <laughs> do the the normal things that you have to do as a, as a startup biotech, but uh, still enable us to kind of get more get more of an understanding of of, of how best to talk about this because we can't assume we know. Um, how people feel about it. And I think that's the mistake that, as you said, people doing early genetic engineering and nuclear technology and things that I came up against. So um, so I'm looking to gather more intelligence before we go all in on one strategy.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that's obviously, um, you know, constantly listening and then collaborating as a strategy, you know, two of the things that we obviously espouse, you know, as part of that framework. But um, mm. the interesting thing is when you think about the disease states in particular, where you tend to get the people being the most willing to experiment, right? It's going to be things that are primarily ultra rare or untreatable diseases. Mm -hmm. And so if you say, look, there's nothing else for this, then it's a lot easier to get people to try an experimental new, new approach. If you're saying it's diabetes and there's a massive ingrained, you know, um, kind of, you know, ecosystem for Mm -hmm. treating, managing disease, managing symptoms, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, it's a lot harder to get patients in particular to say, I'll sign up for something experimental, especially if it's going to be about messing with my genome, you know, yeah. like, um, and so that is, I think where, where that kind of early dialogue and getting them on board and talking about what you're aiming to accomplish and why they might be interested. It's, it's definitely, yeah. it's smart that you're doing that early. Yeah. Um, okay. so yeah, I want wonder- sorry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, well, I was just going to ask about the, you know, as you think about your different stakeholders, I mean, you mentioned three very different stakeholder groups between regulators, you know, physicians Mm -hmm. and then patients. yeah. And I would imagine in this kind of a a, a topic area, you kind of need three distinct messages, you know, or three distinct tracks of communicating with those three different uh, stakeholder groups, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but there's not that much out there, and you don't have that much of a platform to talk about this, right? At the end of the day, you're one of a couple of others, you know, in this in this um, area. So it's hard to get a lot of, um, you know, a lot of attention and a lot of share of voice from major media and things like that, right? Um, so how do you how do you go about? You yeah, go ahead.
2: So yeah, it's it's definitely a challenge, um, and we we constantly have to think about. Anything that we're putting out as being potentially visible by all of those channels, right? So if, if you specify mm-hmm. too hard and do something that's super investor friendly, it necessarily mm-hmm. excludes patient groups, right? And and vice versa, and things like that. Um, but yeah, obviously we have targeted communications uh, for, for all of those groups as well, and and also I consider like the internal group, like the band, the the talent that we have working at um, at Tune. As part of that communications effort, right? We want everybody to kind of align with that one big arrow and feel the purpose of what it is that we're doing. Um, especially in the early days, before you know, you've got the, the concrete product and the thing that's running, and the you know, <laughs> the, the the IPO and everything that makes very, everybody very excited about um kind of confirmed confirming the success of the company that you're in and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, I think kind of in the first instance, um, it's it's about making sure that you've got the right consistent messaging across all of those things. And then just trying to kind of tweak the messaging so that people, so you're not assuming too much knowledge in any of those particular arenas, right? I I think sometimes I see um, some of our, uh, some of our, Parallels some of our competitors uh, kind of almost assuming that people know entirely what the problem is here and we can skip over that and we can jump straight to our preferred solution. Like, Hey, we can edit the epigenome and we can tune these genes. And of course you're going to want to need that. And people kind of look back at that and sort of say, why when there's already kind of a therapeutic in this space, or there's already a different modality that seems to solve the problem you're looking at. So an example of this might be, um, uh, ASCBD, right. Um, atherosclerotic, um, cardiovascular disease. So we released some data at um, a conference a few months ago um, that showed that we had managed to decrease the levels of a gene called PCSK9, which is involved in the cholesterol metabolism, right? It's a fairly common target in lots and lots of uh, cholesterol and um, pharmaceuticals and things like that. And we've managed to kind of decrease levels of um, this gene output and the LDLC cholesterol that, that comes out of it as well um, by an enormous amount um, but by a huge amount for a period of six months or more in monkeys. And this was after a single uh, administration of the treatment, right? Um, so why that's important, it has to be framed because on the one hand, you've got existing treatments for cholesterol, right? Everybody could start taking statins when they're 30 and probably never have a heart attack if they kept taking them for their whole life. But so why don't they? One, it's a pain in the ass. (laughs) You have to take pills every single day and people forget and things. There's some perceived kind of side effects. Some people suffer, you know, muscle pain and other things like that and come off of them. Um, And just, and there's that kind of general non compliance thing where people just kind of fall off um, as well. So there are things like statins and monoclonal antibodies that will control um, excess cholesterol. And you, if as long as you take them like consistently for life, like non stop. And uh, so there's a compliance problem there. There's a problem with people just continuing to take the medicine that kind of works. And there's also some subgroups where it's it's not enough, right? And you're still not going to solve that cholesterol problem. But on the flip side, you've got modalities like gene editing that come in and say, well, we can cure this in a one and done. We can just go in and remove that entire gene. You don't need that. right? We'll take that out. Um, and then it w- you won't produce this much cholesterol um, or will be processed in a different way. And the net result was there's less cholesterol in your bloodstream or LDLC." Um and then it's one and done, and you're good. And But then it comes back to that question, like you said, of like, well, how sick would I have to be, right? <laughs> how mm-hmm. close to heart attack would I have to be before I'd let somebody just remove an entire gene from my whole body, my whole genome, um, and then be happy about it? Um, and the answer is pretty sick. It's um, if, if you look mm-hmm. at the research, most of the time, even people who have had heart attacks um, or strokes within the last six months, about 5% of them are still on statins and monoclonal antibodies and, you know, I, I even are within six months and you would think that they'd be highly motivated to, to stay on them, but they're not. They fall off really quickly. And we don't really know yet how much compliance people are going to get or how willing they're going to, um, to be to to be gene edited, right? So, so this is where our message comes in, where the idea is that, okay, we've got the potential to be one and done here, but we've also we're also doing it in a way that's non-drastic, non-permanent, so we can solve that compliance problem and we can p- potentially solve that that safety issue, you know, or perceived safety issue at the same time. Um, so it's about kind of threading that needle, I think, between where people actually are, um, and the message that you want to give them. And I think sometimes people leapfrog the, the bits in the middle and and make assumptions about how people feel, which, uh, which can only be resolved really by lots of listening, like you
1: said. So, so if we're, we're talking about leapfrogging now and let's, let's look way into the future. Does this mean there's a future where we just wouldn't take pills anymore?
2: I mean, potentially, Um, potentially there's um, maybe for not all conditions, for not all people, um, but there's certainly a potential for the platform of genetic tuning of what we're doing to kind of transform the space, not only of genetic medicine in the sense of going into your body and making a change, which then just silences or tunes down a harmful gene for the entirety of your life um, that way, right? There's definitely the potential to do that. And that's one aspect of what we're working on and producing. Um, But there's also this other sense in which um, it has the ability to kind of really redefine what you could do with cell therapies, like up to this point now, stem cells and um, the application of those has been pretty limited. There's been some success in cell therapies with you know, blood cancers, lymphomas, leukemias, things like that, which is wonderful. But we've not really seen that make an inroads into solid tumor spaces or into regenerative disease more broadly because it's just so complicated. It's so difficult. The cells mm-hmm. don't really do what you want them to do. But we have this ability to leverage the system that already does that, right? This is the natural system that differentiates and specifies cells. And we've kind of got the Rosetta Stone that allows you to do that, to shift a cell type from one to another, whether it's from a liver cell to a muscle, or from a a, a liver cell that's failing into a liver cell that looks like it's 20 years old again, you know, whatever that's going to be. So if we have the capacity to do that, then yeah, in Mm -hmm. some ways, we might have this ability to do a one and done for a lot of different potential areas. But this complicates the message because, you know, it's it's much cleaner in the pharmaceutical biotech area when people say, so which, you know, what's your area of influence here? What's the indication, you <laughs> know, which tissue you're going into? And so in a lot of ways, we're more like kind of a tech platform. Right. It's it, it's enabling of a lot of potential transformations in the space and of genetic and cellular and regenerative medicine more broadly. Um, so the challenge is like, how do we communicate that first proof of concept and say, look, see, we did that. And now from there, of course, we can go to these 12 other things, right? So that's, um. but yeah, I mean, that's the excitement for me of, of working in this space. And for most of the people in the band, you know, we have this incredible amount of talent and the co-founders of the company are both like, Titans in the space, Fyodor Urnov actually invented the term gene editing in the first place, right? Um, and he's been working on, wow. you know, epigenome editing and genetic tuning on the side of that for the last 20 years in California. And um Charlie Gershbach, our other co-founder, is probably the most published person on epigenome work in in the field. Um and so we come with this enormous base of knowledge and and uh, and this library of equipment and things that we can work with um, materials, uh, and then all of this talent. But it's really like that excitement for for the huge potential of what it is. We're not looking to go like five percent more effective than an existing LDL therapeutic, right? We're looking to completely dent the space. Um, you know, disruption is overused as a phrase these days, but it re- it really is that level of technology, right? It's uh, if it succeeds, it changes everything, right? <laughs> not just a couple of things.
1: That's wonderful. And I mean, I I have to say, you know, as as we as we look at your bio, it seems an unlikely place for you. Although it started out, you know, describing your your, you know, academia uh, makes sense. But in the middle, there were some stops along the way that don't seem like they would lead you immediately to where you've you've landed. So uh, yeah, I mean, first of all, can I ask one about the martial arts experience? And then two. Sure. You're going to have to explain this to people, but does farting make you faster?
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we, let's address the second one first, because that's going to be foremost most okay, everyone's mind. Yeah. yeah. yeah um, no, it doesn't. Sadly, all mammals fart, and it doesn't really make you any faster in a, in a foot race. I, I found that one out through research. Um, but yeah, I, I spent... A good 15 years writing popular science books, mostly for kids, teenagers, um, as a public engagement with science and technology type effort as a spinoff from my time at the um, National Museum of Science and Industry in London. So I used to design exhibitions, um, write science shows, do public engagement efforts there at the London Science Museum um, and ended up writing books for Macmillan as kind of a spinoff from that and then spent 15 years as an author. And I've written, um, I think, 32 books now and they've been translated Is that into right? that. Other- yeah, and about like 30 or 40 languages worldwide, something like that. So, yeah, do fart and they English have illustrious is... titles?
1: All of them, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, are...
2: there's does Farty yeah.
1: make you faster? How loud can you burp? Why is snot green?
2: Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. definitely a three a theme. It's uh, I've been I've been acknowledged <laughs> as a, a leading voice in the in the field of grossology in the uh, within the field. So that's uh, <laughs> been one part of it. Yeah, definitely. The uh, the marketers got hold of that first success with the first couple of books, and they uh they were like, "Can we do another one with gross science in the title, even if the book is not about that? Just put something gross on the front." Um, but yeah, definitely spurred a trend within the field. But yeah, but I spent um 15 years doing that, and I think what I learned from that was if you can explain something to, like, an eight-year-old, right? If you can explain really complex science to an eight-year-old or a 12-year-old or a disaffected teen who doesn't even want to be there, right? He's like, I don't want to learn things, right? (laughs) Then um, Mm -hmm. if you can capture them with that kind of learning by stealth, then that's a real skill. Um, Mm -hmm. And and that's in part what we're doing sometimes with marketing across a a broad field, right? It's, It's trying to capture attention. Um, and not assume that people are going to be interested in it by dint of the data or the or the technology itself. It's like, where where are people already? And in the case of eight year olds, where they are already is burps and farts are hilarious. So <laughs> start there, and then you can work from there to the digestive system, or the you know, pulmonary system, or whatever it's going to be. So I think I learned to work from both ends in in fifteen years of. Of doing that, Um, and then it's
1: a little unfortunate that you were, you know, kind of just ahead of the YouTube era. I feel like you know, whereas you got like Mark Rober out there, you know, becoming famous now, doing very similar work just on YouTube. Um, Um,
2: Yeah,
1: shows shows how important the actual channel is as well.
2: Yeah, maybe. Or perhaps I just have a face for radio, as they used to put it, or a face for, face <laughs> for books. <laughs> maybe I'm better a off not in front of okay,
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. And, and on the martial arts front, um, that was essentially, that's just been something that I've studied since I was seven years old. And I spent a couple of years in Japan studying under masters there, and I've always done it. And I think that's taught me a lot about how people interact, trust each other. Um, and also running businesses aligned with that and keeping people together and keeping people in a, a shared environment where they're all happy to take risks. And then that creates kind of like this social bond, a little bit like in the military, you know, like we're all in this together. So it creates this kind of camaraderie. And I've seen that um, across clubs that I've started in UK and then here in North Carolina. Um, and I think that's really helpful when you come into working collaboratively in teams. If you come you know, in-house into a company like I am now. Uh, you know, you're never a one-man person. I'm always drawing on the expertise and the experience of the researchers and the scientists and the people in business development and investor relations who understand the target audience so much better. Um, And if you can get them all not just contributing and doing their job, but feeling safe with taking, you know, careful risks and, and kind of just going a bit outside the box with each other and, you know, really leaning on each other and trusting each other there, then you can get to a slightly different space. So I think something about that confluence of, um abilities between being able to explain very uh complex stuff in a very simple way and also being able to help bring people together was probably um what our ceo matt kane kind of saw in my capacity to help Tune get where to where it's trying to go
1: so i mean for what it's worth i see what they saw you know pretty clearly my my question is also and if you think about people listening to this show it's plenty of people who've considered making an abrupt career change yeah but the like how to go about it, how to, how to target, kind of like how to choose where you want to go, you know, mm. like it, it does feel like once you're in a certain kind of company or a certain kind of career path, it becomes really hard to see beyond that, you know, because your network becomes a little bit more focused, you know, and the people you're speaking to know about opportunities that are all in a very specific lane. Yeah. It does feel like you made a, I mean, pretty drastic, you know, some pretty drastic changes. So any thoughts on, you know, if you're, if you're a person who's considering making a big career switch, like how would you go about finding where your happy place might be? Right.
2: Yeah. I, I think a certain amount of that is just riding the ways of potential opportunity that are available to you. networking is enormously important. Just talking to people, whether or not you feel like there's some benefit in it. Right. I think that's a lost art (laughs) people just making friends and talking just to, to establish trust and, you never know what you might learn from somebody. Everybody has something to teach you, right? And and if you have a broad enough sense of that, then you'll get you'll leverage their understanding and their visions of the world and what's going on, right? So part of my opportunity has come from just exposure to people and and some kind of fortuitous crossing of paths at different stages, right? And that have enabled me to see, it. oh wow, I didn't even realise there was a, a career in this. I, I think that there are some academic groundings in this, like the science of communication masters that I did forced us to dabble in certain different areas. Like I worked at um, News and Features in Nature um, the journal Nature mm. in London. And um, so I wrote and I got to see what it was like to be a fast update journalist working in that, you know, um, in that environment for a year and wrote pieces for them. But we also uh, did stints in policy, like science policy of government, or we did website design, or we did, you know, lots of different things like that, which gave me some idea of and museums, which is where I went right after graduating on, on that level. So it, it gave me an idea that, wow, there's actually lots of ways that you can go here within the science communications field. Um, industry wasn't one that I was keen to jump into right away. Um, at that time, but um, I've become more interested in it as I feel like the industry, the capacity of the industry, has caught up with what I did in my undergrad. Like the promise of genetic medicine was enormous mm-hmm. in the 1990s and 2000s, but it never quite bore out to me. Right? Is there it was a lot of talk that as soon as we've clocked the human genome, we have the code. That's it. It's done. Disease is over. Right? And it didn't quite pan out that way for for decades. Um, and it's only now, and with these kinds of technologies, that that's actually got the a real chance of becoming true, I think. And so I think I've kind of gone full circle in a way and always had this kind of passion to wanna communicate that and help enable those technologies. But it's not until now that I've really trusted that they're actually well on their way to doing it. And I feel like this is the right time to get in. And in terms of how do you make that jump? I feel like at every stage when I've done that, whether it's from going from museum education work to becoming an author or becoming an author to doing consulting work in science communications, um, from doing that to working in-house for a, um, for a biotech at every stage, I kind of kept my day job, you know, like, like when I started mm. writing the books, I wrote it on weekends and, and evenings while I was still doing the other thing. And so I think that old adage, adage about keep your day job is and keeping an escape route open all of the time is always good because then you never feel pressured. You're like, well, if this doesn't work out. I have this one. And as soon as one line dries up to me, I open up another pincer movement just in case. And I think that's just a worthwhile strategy to have. If you spread yourself too thin, you can never put down roots and enjoy yourself in the job that you're in or feel purpose, I think. But it's always good to have at least one escape plan because then you feel like, well, I'm enjoying this and I'll ride this as long as it goes. And then um, you, you've got to fall back and it might be in a different area, like you said.
1: Yeah. And it's, and it's. I mean, it's a good reminder, you know, when when the modern discourse is so much about side hustles. It's a little mm-hmm. different, right? You're sort of opening a whole path for yourself as opposed yeah. to a side hustle that's a little bit, you know, by design, not something that could be a full-time hustle, right? Yeah. Um and, and instead you're sort of giving yourself two potential full-time hustles.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and I guess you've had the similar thing in your experience, right? Moving between being like agency or being kind of like in-house. And I think that seems quite common within the field yeah. that we're into. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, Glenn, um, this has been great. I, I really appreciate you first of all educating me and all of our listeners about epigenetics. I and mean, this is gonna be obviously a really interesting part uh, you know, of our of our industry over the next um 10, 20 years. And um hearing you explain it as you would to an eight year old was really helpful. Yeah. Um so, so thank you for that. Um and you know, it's just great catching up with you. And I'm, I'm sure people are gonna get a lot out of this. So thank you.
2: Yeah, thank you very much and if yeah if people want to find out more please do visit the website um or follow us on socials We're on LinkedIn and Twitter and there's lots of educational material there and ways to understand and engage where we might be going with this technology.
1: Are you going to be adding any any grossology into your TuneTX socials?
2: No no immediate plans as yet although we did <laughs> we did do a bit about um <laughs> epigenomes of 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 dog breeds and that you can actually discover patterns And I've reposted this from another article. It was fascinating. You can actually find epigenomic signatures of dogs' uh, behaviors such as shows shame went wrong or circles before pooping, which is really quite interesting. I think so.
0: I'm kind of getting a little (laughs) bit of
2: that stuff in there by by step. That's perfect. (laughs) All
1: right. Well, thank you very much, Glenn.
0: Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share with your friends and colleagues on LinkedIn? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Lippie Taylor. That's L-I-P-P-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R. And to learn more about us and our agency, visit us at LippeyTaylor.com. Thank you for listening to Frictionless Marketing. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out Paul's best-selling book, Friction Fatigue, what the failure of advertising means for future-focused brands. In Friction Fatigue, Paul explains to readers why advertising is broken and provides a frictionless marketing framework to help build your brand in an era where advertising is no longer the answer. You'll learn how to protect your business against competitors and lead the pack with fresh marketing strategies that will help you prepare for a future where the consumer rules. Friction Fatigue is now available on Amazon and as a book on tape on Audible.com. Thanks again for listening.